The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis is number eight on my 2021 book reviews. The Last Battle is the last book in C.S. Lewis's Narniad. And true to the idea of last battle, it is apocalyptic. Shift the ape is the last day's false prophet. Shift convinces Puzzle, a donkey, to pretend to be Aslan. This serves as a kind of antichrist figure. Both of them, Shift being the main one, deceive the Narnians into believing that Puzzle is Aslan, this donkey who's dressed up like a lion, and also that Aslan and Tash are the same god. Tash would be the god of the Kalermans, which kind of serves as an analog to Arabic or Muslim culture. Through all this, he's breathing lies and deceptions, and he foments a great apostasy in Narnia. Tyrion, a descendant of Prince Caspian, he resists this false prophet. He publicly rebuts Shift for saying that Tash and Aslan are the same, and he's subsequently tied to a tree for speaking this truth. Tyrion taking on this kind of messianic image. Tyrion is eventually freed by Jill and Eustace, who are called into Narnia. They fight for Narnia against the Kalermans, and they basically lose. The Kalermans take over Caer Paravel. The real god Tash, this Satan figure, is released, and he is he's essentially summoned by Shift. And the Kalermans, they start sacrificing their prisoners to Tash. Shift is eventually thrown to Tash, and Tash eats Shift. Tyrion appears to be on his own, and then he finds himself fighting the general of the Kalermans' army, Rishta. He drags Rishta into this small stable where this false Aslan puzzle was located, and a Kalerman soldier was in there pretending to be Tash. But then it turns into this portal into a different dimension, to some kind of Narnian version of heaven. And Aslan, he calls on Father Time, the old Narnia is destroyed, and the real Narnia is made in its place or something along these lines. I, I kind of had a hard time following everything and I should probably reread it to uh, better organize everything, but that's kind of the general summary of the book. There's a few things that I liked in the book here. One of the things that Lewis touches on is noble death. Now, Lewis was a young officer in the First World War. He saw trench warfare at the Somme in France, which was a brutal battle. And I imagine this experience helped form how he wrote about battle. In the last battle, an eagle informs Tyrion that Caer Paravel is filled with dead Narnians and living Kalermans. He also reports that Runewit the centaur had died. And I think Runewit the centaur was this kind of prophet of some sort. And I believe he warned Tyrion that there was evil coming into Narnia. He dies with an arrow in his side. And so we have kind of more Christological imagery here. And the eagle says to Tyrion, I was with him in his last hour and he gave me this message to your majesty to remember that all worlds draw to an end and that noble death is a treasure which no one is too poor to buy. It's put in the mouth of this eagle. Well, it's actually put in the mouth of the centaur, but it's one of these noble warrior prophets who says these things, who died in battle. It's just, I really appreciated that. And we have something similar with Jill when she realizes that she might die in Narnian battle. Jill says this, I was going to say I wished we'd never come. But I don't. I don't. I don't. Even if we are killed, I'd rather be killed fighting for Narnia than grow old and stupid at home and perhaps go about in a bath chair and then die in the end just the same. <laughs> uh, 
Another fantastic uh, uh, saying. Lewis says something similar along these lines in his learning in wartime speech, which is worth checking out. He says that dying in battle is often quick and painless, whereas dying in peacetime can be protracted and painful. That's another essay worth checking out. One of the more famous and controversial instances in the last battle is Kellerman salvation. If the Kellermans serve as this kind of Muslim analog, and then we find that there's a Muslim in Narnia heaven. It's kind of this scandalous thing that uh, Lewis decided to do. And he does this with Emmeth, who is this noble warrior, but he's a Kellerman. He's told that Aslan and Tash are the same. So this warrior is told that Aslan and Tash are the same god. He is willing to see Aslan in this stable where Narnians and Kellermans are, are dying. He is willing to die in order to see Tashlin, since they're the same god Tashlin as the name of this amalgam that uh, they've been told about. So he believes what he's been told. He's been deceived, but he's still this noble, virtuous warrior. And we read this when he's about ready to go die just so he could see his god. Jill felt like crying when she looked at his face. And Jewel whispered in the king's ear, By the lion's mane, I almost love this young warrior, Callerman though he be. He is worthy of a better god than Tash. When we get to the heaven scene, we see Emeth. Aslan tells him that all the good that he did in the name of Tash were done for Aslan, and that all the evil that is done in the name of Aslan is done for Tash. So the fact that this is controversial is self-evident. I don't think Lewis is... I don't think he's endorsing kind of a full-throated universalism or any kind of universalism. I don't think Lewis is endorsing a kind of brute or naked works righteousness either. I think Lewis is making a comment on the justice and mercy of God while still affirming that nobody comes to the Father except through the Son. Paul says that the Gentiles through creation are able to know God and that by nature they do the things of the law. But Paul also says that nobody is justified by the law. Everyone is justified by faith and that faith must be in the true God. Lewis, I think, is making a comment on God's justice and mercy here. While we may not know the final judgments God makes in such cases, we do know that God will be just and we know that Christ is the exclusive way of salvation for all men. So I'll just leave it at that. And then we have this further up and further in idea that's present when they're in the new heavens and new earth of Narnia, the new Narnia. Once they are in this final heaven, they realize that it is Narnia, but it's more real than the Narnia that they knew. Diggory says this, or Lord Diggory, listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. And then Farsight, the eagle, says this. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. The new Narnia is described as a deeper country where every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. Lord Diggory says this, You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, 
all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as waking life is from a dream. I collect these quotes to show that this is all very platonic. We can confidently say that Lewis is envisioning some kind of Christian Platonism here. Doesn't mean that it's false, it's just a way of envisioning what God has showed us through the scriptures and heaven and trying to put some handles on what that might be. And Lewis does this all over the place. And we actually have Lewis telling us this when Lord Diggory says in this book, it's all in Plato, all in Plato, bless me. What do they teach them at these schools? So we, we have kind of Lewis just straight up showing that everything there is in Plato already. And then we have the unicorn summing up what everyone was feeling at this moment. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Come further up, come further in. So we have this heaven described. It's like an onion, except as you peel, the circles get bigger. The inside is bigger than the outside. Narnia is just the cover page and they began chapter one of a great story that no one on earth has ever read where the story never ends and each chapter gets better than the last. So the, this is Lewis trying to verbalize and express heaven. And all of these ideas he does even more wonderfully, I think, in his essay, The Weight of Glory. And I would say it's the same thing. The last battle here in heaven is the narratival or the fairy form of it, where in The Weight of Glory, he's just telling us exactly what he thinks about these things in more kind of direct language. He describes our feelings of nostalgia or feelings of beauty as the scent of a flower, but not the flower itself that if we were to go back to that moment of nostalgia, it wouldn't be what we were longing for. If we, if we think of a smell that reminded us of our home when we were younger and we were to be transported back in time to that moment, we would still be longing. There'd still be an aching for something more. And Lewis says that that is our desire for heaven, our desire for God. And these things, which we call beauty or nostalgia, they act as signposts to our real home, which is in heaven. And yet he places heaven, not in this ethereal kind of cloudy space, but it is Narnia. It is on the earth of Narnia, if you want to talk about it that way. So all of these things, if you pair the last battle with the weight of glory, and then also with the great divorce, you have kind of this Trinitarian view of, or this triad, I guess I should say, of writings that Lewis has on how he envisions heaven. And I would say it's kind of this Christian Platonism. And I'd say it's, it's very helpful. It's not an infallible concept, but it is very helpful in understanding these things. And lastly, we, we have this little stable that features in the middle of this apocalyptic battle. And I thought it was strange that they had this, this stable where people were going in and dying and it housed a false god and it was where Aslan was supposed to be and then it served as this portal. I was pretty confused about it, but if we if we start thinking about what it is, it becomes pretty obvious. I was surprised I didn't pick up on this sooner until it was almost at the very end, but it's a small insignificant stable, but once they entered it, the inside was bigger than the outside. They enter into this new Narnia. And it's described as an onion that when you peel it, it grows larger. And of course, Jewel says that one can keep going further up and further in. 
once you enter this little stable. And all of this is a comment on the incarnation. And Lucy says this at the very end, which is where, which is finally, I think I had to, uh, I had to kind of be brought along um, like a clueless reader. But Lucy says that in their world, in our world, there once was a stable that held something that was bigger than the stable. And that's Christ. Christ is the portal to heaven. He is the door and in him is the fullness of God. And God is infinite. So choosing a tiny stable made sense after all. Thank you.